You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. sanctuary from the 1970s, and you had to actually find a new chair. It was kind of fun to watch people try to figure out their normal spot and try to try to not be able to go there. It's not there. You've got to go to a new seat. Well, uh, I want to just say hello to everyone who's online. Yes, we will look a little different. We might look a little smaller. We might sound different, but we are no less close to you than we are every week. We are virtually together celebrating the the risen Lord, worshiping God together as a group of people. So we're glad you're here. Well, last week I got a a lot of feedback, a lot of positive feedback from the sarcasm sermon. People were quite positive on that. And and I even got some surprising comments. Some people said it's not sarcastic enough. And I even got ridiculed for, you know, being old by talking about memes. So to all of those people, I'd just like to say, well, I'm so sorry. That I was not sarcastic enough. I guess I'll not try any harder today to be sarcastic. Now, I probably should have learned years ago. Sarcasm just doesn't work so much in terms of teaching. People don't get it. Uh, Sometimes kids don't get it. Sometimes people with a language barrier do not get it. Or if you don't really know the person, can't quite tell, are they being serious or are they not being serious? But our story today still has some sarcasm, so I'm going to jump back in. We've been looking at fear and trust, almost as if it's an equation where we've got trust on one side of it being greater than or equal to our fear on the other side. And we probably feel like we know something about that word trust we believe in something, that we're committed to something, that we're willing to act, and maybe this is the biggest one, to act as if that something is true, really to put our money on the line, to put our hands and feet into action. We know about trust, but when you put that in equation with fear, we also know fear, and it doesn't seem like those two should be together. And with fear, you think of terror. You think about this looming sense of dread that something bad is going to happen. You're concerned about someone or something. And you just are unclear if it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. Maybe it's a danger or a threat or some peril that you face. And it, it raises within you a certain level of anxiety. Now, in religious circles, we'll talk about the fear of God in terms of kind of an ancient description of awe of God or reverence for God. And I'm trying to help us see those two together. Sometimes it's a little confusing. Let me give you an example. Like whenever we think about fear, I think about what I felt whenever I heard this week the statistics on murder and homicide. Did any of you hear about this? The FBI released their statistics that in the United States, the homicide rate, the murder rate, has gone up 30%. That's the largest increase ever. 100 years of keeping this data. 
And of course, in Albuquerque, we get a little bit more anxious because even the New York Times quotes our own people, professors from UNM and people connected to our police force. And we realize, oh, this is close to home. And so it raises this level of fear. Well, I, I'm also aware on these statistics that it's not just, oh, murder in those big cities, Los Angeles or New York. In fact, those aren't increasing. It's murder rates in mid-sized cities that are increasing. And that kind of makes us a little uncomfortable. Now, I know it's not as big uh, of, a, of a homicide rate as it was in the 1990s. But yet, here's the kicker for me when I heard this. This isn't about gang violence or big drug deals gone bad. These are like basic arguments. Arguments between husbands and wives, fights breaking out at parties, or teens that are selling drugs to one another in small quantities and then trying to steal those drugs back, and it ends up in some kind of a shootout. These are arguments over beer pong. Seriously, drinking games that go wrong, and you realize that there's something to just our everyday interactions. Now, see, you hear that, and that makes you think fear, right? So why in the world would we put fear and trust in God together? When it comes to God, this is my concern. We talk about fear in a negative way, we'll lose this sense of awe and respect. We'll think of God more like an abusive father. More like a relationship of power where one is controlling the other. And we'll think about God in this way of an angry, rageful addict. And that's just not the way God is. Think about it. How did God choose to come to us? Came as a baby. Came as an infant. Came like us, a very common person, indistinguishable. When you think about the way God comes, God comes with gentleness and with grace, and he comes near to us. And this kind of God is a God who's unafraid of the difficulties that we face and wants to hear from us. Well, let's look at our story for today, uh, a story from the book of Exodus. And if you're able to and want to, would you stand with me as I read this short passage from Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 2. The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread. For you brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you each day. For the people will go out and will gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gathered on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you shall know that it was Yahweh the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning... You shall see the glory of the Lord, because he heard your complaint against the Lord. For what are we that you complain against us? And then Moses said, You will see that it is the Lord who gives you meat to eat in the evening, 
and your fill of bread in the morning, because the Lord heard the complaining that you uttered against him. What are we? Your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You find your seats. Now, this picture of God is a picture of a God we don't have to be terrified of. This is a God who welcomes our complaining. He hears our needs. If you look at the crises that they've been through, they've been some pretty significant crises. The first big crisis was a military crisis where an army, an elite army, is closing in on them to crush them. The next one was they didn't have any water. And here in this passage, they don't have any food. And they, these are not luxuries. We're talking about personal safety, the ability to eat and have something to drink. These aren't luxuries. They're not complaining because the color of whatever they bought on Amazon doesn't quite match up with what's going on in their kitchen. This is just basic stuff. And so God hears it and responds to it. And yet, their response and the way that they phrase it is a level of sarcasm, right? Look at verse 3. In, in this situation, they look at Moses and they accuse Moses and Aaron of wanting to murder them. And they wish to have already died by the hand of the Lord. That's what they're about. Now just, just think about that. They are wishing to have already been dead in the past tense. Past tense. Just that it happened long ago. That God's hand had struck them dead. And then they take that finger like a prosecuting attorney and they poke it in the face of Moses and Aaron. And you are the murderers of us. Because we had these flesh pots. And that threw me off. Hopefully your bird says something better than that. These are like trays of meat. You know those meat places, the all-you-can-eat meat places? We've got one in downtown Albuquerque where you just get all the meat you want. That's what they get. All-you-can-eat meat and bread. That's what we had in, in slavery. Really. Seriously. It was an all-you-can-eat buffet in slavery in Egypt. Something's not making sense here. The heat is getting to them. So they wish that they were dead because they wanted the all-you-can-eat buffet. And then they look at murder Moses and they say, you're just wanting to murder us. What? Well, which is it? Do you want to die? Is it that you just you want God to kill you, but not Moses to kill you? But you're going to blame Moses on the way out. The heat has gotten to them where they are having something of a heat stroke. And what we're seeing in the story is what trust looks like. It's a training ground. And the people, like us, look at circumstances that are presented to them, and they think that's the problem. The problem is, I'm hungry. The problem is, I need water. The problem is, I've got people breathing down my necks. That's the problem. No. Those are not the problems. The things that you and I identify as the problem is not the problem. The problem is trust in God. That's the problem. They don't trust that God will provide them food and that God will provide them water. They do not trust the leadership of God. And so often, we don't trust God either. God cares for us. God always cares and is always providing exactly what we need. 
And here, I want to draw you to a couple of words that you see over and over again. See, draw near, and know. God says to Moses, look, they're going to see that I am God. They are going to want to draw near to me. And bookended in verse 6 and verse 12 is we, they will know the glory of God. They will know that I am God. Both at the beginning in verse 6 and at the end in verse 12. That's what this is about. The problem is not knowing God. These are kind of all terms for the fear of God, correct? These are terms for what it means to trust God. And yet, we focus on these external, externals and we think that the problem is something else. So, Moses and Aaron are able to walk in and pronounce to the people this great news that they're going to get bread and, and uh, meat. Shazam, here it is, it's going to show up in the morning. And the people walk out and they look around and they say, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? And that becomes the name of this food. Let's have some what's it. <laughs> it's not that great, actually. I mean, there are natural descriptions of it. There's a, a little lice that will inject itself into the tamarisk fruit, and then it will excrete it out in the morning, kind of like dew, into these little ball-like substances. Doesn't that sound delicious? I mean, wouldn't you say the same thing? What is this? What, this is no Shazam. This is a terrible meal. And it's what they ate for 40 years. God providing for them here in the wilderness. And the plan is, just get enough for you for one day. That's it. So, do they pass the test, number one, this training program? They gather just enough? No, some get too much and worms infiltrate it. They fail test number one. Test number two is a little bit different because when we think about a test, we think about something that we have to pass. This, that God does, is a little different kind of a test. It's a gift. Because on that sixth day, they're supposed to collect enough for two days. And then they will be able to rest and not have to gather and not have to prepare food, but just eat what God has given to them. Do they pass that test? No. Probably like me, wandering out, looking for it on the seventh day, and there's no lice manna, what's it, excreted out bread for them to grade. It's gone. The what's it is gone. The gift in this story is very, very important. It's the gift of Sabbath, where God provides to them the gift of rest from their labors. Not only the gift of bread, food, but the gift of the ability to sit back and realize they didn't accomplish it with their own two hands. This is a, a testing of who they will trust. Will they trust God or will they trust themselves? It, it plays out the promise of Exodus 14, verse 14. Yahweh is going to fight for you at the Red Sea. You just have to be still and let God fight for you. Here in this moment, God is providing a sacredness of time, giving us back our time, and calling it holy. In fact, the, the old Jewish rabbi Abraham Heschel talks about this in terms of the sacredness of time being given to us. And yet, we don't think about rest in terms of, being, in terms of it being a gift from God. 
We think about our bank accounts, we think about our jobs, we think about our money, the things that we own, the stuff that we earn, right? This is bread of our own sweat. It's my efforts. Yes, yes, I'll give thanks to God. I'll, I'll glorify God for, for giving it. But I know that I got the degree. I got the job. I'm the one that pleases the boss. And I got that bonus. That's me. Well, there's a difference here in just treating Sabbath as something that we thank God for having a day off. And really and truly believing that God has given what we have to us. Because it's much easier for us to believe our system of hard work and of effort and of who we are than it is to trust what God has given to us. And we get confused. So maybe you start to hear, oh, okay, I need, I need a break. I need to take some time off and rest. One of the places that we get confused is we think, well, that means whenever I'm asked to do something in terms of ministry or service or in the community that, no, I need more family time. And so maybe we get a picture that we need this rest, this gift from God, but we draw the line and say, well, I can't really serve with other Christians, my community. And we push back. That's not exactly what God's after. This kind of getting a conscience whenever it comes to sitting back on our hands whenever we can serve is not the kind of rest that God is talking about. It's carving out space and time to be with God and to be like God. Well, another thing that I want us to hear that might make this sink in a little bit deeper is we sometimes hear a command like rest or Sabbath, and we think that everything starts with a command. God says it, so we're supposed to do it. Actually, Sabbath gets instituted here in this story, the people of God having no food, having no water, needing and depending upon God. It begins in real life. But if you look back, the way God enters into relationship, he hints at Sabbath and creation. Do you remember how God acts? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, he creates the, the earth. He creates the world, all that we can see in six days. You know, it's, it's bigger than just literal days, right? But he creates this, and then he rests from his work. But God doesn't begin with the command. God begins with the relationship. He establishes himself with us as creator, as giver of life. That's where things begin. And here in this story, God establishes God's self as the giver of good gifts, food, bread and meat, of rest. God's identity is wrapped up in what he does for us. And then, have we had the Ten Commandments yet, by the way? No Ten Commandments. It's then, after his identity as creator and giver of gifts, that he says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do you see that difference? Do you see how significant that is? Because so many religious people flip it around and think that it's all about the command first, of what God tells you to do or not do. That's not how God works. He starts in relationship with us and giving us good gifts and pointing the way towards following him. Well, we might take a deep breath here and say, okay, Brady, well, what about Albuquerque? This is fine to talk about this Old Testament passage from thousands of years ago, but what about us? 
I've been thinking about us in this wandering group of people that we're reading about. Do we wander around Albuquerque? How do we get around? We do a lot of driving around Albuquerque, don't we? And Albuquerque is a place where you take your life into your hands when you're on the road. <laughs> so what I want to spend some time with here is telling you what the real challenge of this message is. Are you ready? The real challenge is I want to reduce the murder rate in Albuquerque. I want to reduce the murder rate in Albuquerque, and that is not sarcasm. Here's, here, here we go. So this week I was headed home from, from work, from church, and I'm just coming down the road, and there's a guy that's going to turn right and go the same direction as me. And he doesn't see me, and he's sliding through the stop sign, and then he sees me, slams on his brakes, throws himself back, raises up his hands, begins speaking in some other language, giving me all kinds, I think he knows ASL, because he was giving me all kinds of sign language, pulls in behind me, attaches himself to my bumper, and then off we go. He is just right there, just flailing and upset, man. We get to the stoplight, and he's looking over at me, rolling his window down, just continuing to, to speak. Now, I have a choice in this moment. You've been there before, right? Many, many times. Am I going to engage or am I not? And so I just smiled and ignored the person. Okay? Well, here's how we're going to lower the murder rate in Albuquerque. Ready? First thing is, I don't want you to be murdered. <laughs> this seems like a high bar, but I don't want you to be murdered. I'm regularly saying this to Donna, please don't die, it would really mess up my life. I, I say this to my 93-year-old grandmother, don't die, I need you. I say it to my 71-year-old mom, don't die, it would really mess up my life. I guess I shouldn't say their ages, sorry about that. And that's pretty self-absorbed, but really and truly, don't get yourself murdered. There's so many occasions that we have to engage the hostility of another person, right? They have anger, they have blame, they have maybe sometimes righteous anger. Because who knows what I did to this guy driving 30 miles an hour in a school zone. I don't know what happened. <laughs> maybe they have something that they've seen that's righteous that needs to be corrected. But we do not have to engage. And there are a lot of people that get themselves murdered. But just because they engage and they get hostile and they get angry and upset. And so I'm telling you to avoid being stupid. You don't go to a fight. You don't show up with a weapon. You don't go ready for a fight and a battle. And you don't drive like you're trying out for the next Fast and Furious movie. You don't try as if you've got 3D imaging on your car for Grand Theft Auto, that somehow your vehicle is going to be in that next video game. No. These things will get you killed. Now, I know it, it, it sounds silly, but I'm saying that our actions can stoke the anger and the anxiety of others. And how we respond to others matters. So there's another thing I want to say, not just don't get yourself killed. And this might sound similar, but second, be a person of peace. You don't have to own that person's anger. You don't have to 
absorb their bad mood for the day. It's not your problem. Let it go. It doesn't have to be something that you take on as yours. You don't have to win the argument. You don't have to ridicule them. You don't have to hit them with some sarcastic comment. You can let it go. Because too often, we have someone's bad mood that we take, and we shove a couple sticks of dynamite in it, and we just light it and throw it right back at them, and it blows up all over them. Hostility will be met with hostility in ever-increasing hostility. Well, I don't know if I'm being clear, so I'm going to tell you one more story. That, that guy on the road, like many others, reminds me of one from probably like 15 years ago. Where I was driving down I-35 in Texas, in Dallas, and, and uh, I saw this truck. And, and you know, back that long ago, we didn't have as much obscene uh, imagery, bumper stickers, stuff on the car. I mean, New Mexico, it's great. I love pulling up to every stoplight. I'm like, what, what does that mean? What is that picture? Uh, I have to take a picture of it sometimes and look at it later. <laughs> well, so this one won't sound as obscene, but I, I pull up and he's got four stickers on the tailgate of his white Ford truck. And you'll forgive me for this one, but it says Bill, which is the name of a dealership. I'm not going to give you the last name. Bill Ford sucks. There it is. Bill Ford sucks in the left, or in the right, down low and small, in four places. I was just thinking, well, what possesses a person to be that absorbed with anger that that's going to be the message they want everyone to see. Bill Ford sucks. And so I'm thinking about this, com contemplating, you know, what, you know, what's the deal? And then it dawns on me, we're, we're about to pass Bill Ford. We're on the highway and it's coming up. So I get in behind this guy and we're driving along and I'm like, what's going to happen? What? <laughs> you can picture what happens. Before he gets to the property line, he just starts honking his horn. Double barrel. I don't know how he was driving. I kind of pulled back a little bit at that point. Lots of language. The whole length of this passing of this dealership on the highway. Folks, whenever our anger is allowed to sit within us, when we are not a person of peace, when we need to be a person who's in control, who thinks that we're the one that deserve things, that we're the one that's in the right, we're going to lose. We are going to lose because we have set ourselves up as our own God and we're not trusting in the rest that God provides for us. We're trusting in ourselves to defend our, uh, our right name against all of this injustice that's in the world. So what I'm telling you is to reduce the murder rate in Albuquerque. By first, don't be murdered. Stop being stupid. And instead, on a more positive side, being a person of peace. Someone that's joyful. Someone that's full of kindness. In fact, if you really want to put this to the test, you'll pick up one of those first ABQ stickers and put it on your car. And drive nice. <laughs> Don't put it on your car and drive me. Drive nice. It's almost like it's a thing of accountability, a tether holding you back. Because we are wanting to be a people who trust God. The practice of the Sabbath is a way that we trust God. To show that we didn't earn what we've been given. And we give control over that. And we give glory to what we've earned and achieved to God. And that we're people of peace. 
Not who are ready to raise our hands and say, let's murder Moses is nothing but a murderer. God, please kill us. These keystroke confusions of anger will not end in good things. But being a person of peace will bring about good things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for giving us life. And we thank you that you are a God who enters into relationship with us, gives us gifts, and then shows us how your instructions and commands point us to a better way of living. So we pray for our neighborhood, our city, our state, for our whole country, that we will reduce the anxiety and the fear and the rage and the anger, and that we will instead be people of peace, people who can go about our living restfully, knowing that you're in charge and that you will bring this world and us to the completion that you intend for us. We pray all this through Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.